0: Well, please turn with me and your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're in a uh, an Advent series entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told. And each week of this series we've been looking at the reasons it's the greatest story ever told. Uh, and some of those that we've talked about already are that it is an ancient story. This is not something that's recently been invented. It's been part of the fabric of civilization from ancient days. It's an unexpected story. Many of the things that happen in the story of the coming of Christ are surprising. They're not expected. They're things that we wouldn't normally have thought could even occur. Thirdly, it's an astonishing, incredible, almost impossible story that a virgin would give birth to a child. It goes against our understanding of what is natural in the world. God intervenes into the natural world to do something astonishing. This morning, we're going to look at the fact that this is a history-altering story, and then tonight, it is a life-changing story. It's the greatest story ever told. Great stories, great events that occur in the history of of humanity are the kinds of things that do alter the course of human events. They alter history, in a sense. And there have been a few things over the course of human history that have altered the course of the way that the world works and lives and and acts. Uh, I could mention many of them this morning. I just want to mention one that is a fairly recent note, uh, back in 19. 45 on July 16th, uh, the United States accomplished uh, an event that has changed the world. And that was its ability to harness nuclear power in the form of an atomic bomb. That effort, the Manhattan Project and everything that went with it, was ongoing, not just in America, but other nations, especially Germany, were in a race to see who would be the first to be able to harness the power of nuclear energy in order to use it as a weapon, in the case of the American and allied forces, to bring to an end the worst war the world had ever seen. And on July 16th, in the deserts of New Mexico, under the supervision of some of the most brilliant minds the world had ever brought together, they succeeded. And in doing so, they did indeed, at great loss of life, bring an end to the Second World War. And also introduced into the world power that seemed to rival that of God, at least to human beings. So much so that when Oppenheimer, the leader of the Manhattan Project, saw that mushroom cloud explode, he exclaimed the words of an ancient Hindu proverb, now I am become death the shatterer of worlds. That event changed the course of human history. It still affects us today. It will affect us as long as human beings walk on the face of the earth. But what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that the birth of Jesus Christ far transcends even that event in its power and its majesty because it was in that event, the birth of Jesus Christ, that the full power and the love and the mercy of God were unleashed on the world. Not with the effect of shattering it, but with the effect of saving it. And so would you look with me this morning as we turn our attention to Luke Chapter 2 and verses 1 to 7, the birth narrative that Luke records in these verses, short, succinct, concise, and history-changing. This is God's holy and inerrant word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Help us, O Lord, this morning to see the history of altering love and mercy that was displayed on that morning 2,000 years ago when your Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord, came into this world to save us. We pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear of this great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. The birth narrative of Jesus is... Humility-inspiring. In fact, it's a very fascinating thing because Luke, in a short order of words, that seems in a sense to betray the wonder of what's actually happening here. He actually communicates the birth of Christ in a very uh, quiet sense to us. Um, what follows, of course, is the celebration of the angels, the actual words that convey the birth narrative of Christ are quite restrained. It's interesting because it begins by setting the scene of the birth of Christ, and it tells us the moment in history that this occurred. It was under the power and the reign of Caesar Augustus, who had called all people from this region all around the world to return to their homes, to their native homes, to their families to be registered. A census from the Roman world, census-taking in the course of human history, was for two primary reasons. The first reason was so that the governing powers that that controlled the world would know who they could tax to gain uh, the money necessary to operate their world empires, their war machines, the control of their people. And they had to have an accurate sense of who was taxable, this was particularly true uh, in the land of Judea as uh, these people were under the thumb of Caesar and his governor at the time. There was a second reason that census were called, and that was to register men so that they could serve in the army of these nations. Now, in the case of Israel, they had been exempt from that service. And so the primary reason that Caesar was conducting the census in this time and place was to remind the Jewish people that they were under his thumb. They were under his power and that they would pay in order to be able to practice the little religious freedom that they still had. He was extending and exercising this power. It's interesting because what Luke is doing is he's kind of setting up a little bit of a tension in this story. There was a human decree to exercise power But at the very same time, in the mysterious and wonderful way of God, there is a competing divine decree in which power would be exercised in a whole different way. How was that? That was because an anonymous-seeming teenager from a no-name town gave birth to a seemingly... Insignificant child without even a roof over their heads. Set up the contrast. That's what Luke's doing for us. The most powerful person, maybe in the history of the world, Caesar, being set up against a little child born in a a cave on the outskirts of nowhere. There is a divine intention in creating the beginning of the story in this way. Because this little child, the seemingly insignificant child, was not who he was thought to be. He was the incarnate son of God. And it was that event took place in Bethlehem, in the stable, and not the power of Caesar that would change the world and still changes the world today. Uh, in many ways, the story of Christmas is a rehearsal of one of the most important doctrines in the Christian faith, the doc- faith, the doctrine of the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. It's, it's set up together when you read the whole Bible in the way it's supposed to be read, in contrast and in connection with the doctrine of the Trinity, which declares to us that Jesus is indeed holy and completely God, the second person of the Trinity, divine, a part of uh, the universe from eternity, along with the Father and the Son, the doctrine of the Trinity, But the doctrine of the incarnation tells us that he's he's not only the divine one present over the course of all eternity, but he is a real human being who didn't exercise power merely as a divine one from the heavens, but came into this world taking on flesh, being born as a baby in a manger. Incarnate, his humanity. This incarnate Christ is the sinless prophet, priest, and king that had been promised over the course of the entire story of the scripture, the great story. See, the story of Christ doesn't begin in the New Testament, it begins in the pages of the Old Testament. It begins in in reaction immediately to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord says that he would crush the head of the serpent. How would he do that? Through the sending of his son. John Chrysostom was a preacher in the ancient church just a couple hundred years after the days of Jesus. And he said that the, in the incarnation, God shows how he assumes our weak human nature so that he might restore to us our original robe of immortality. That's what Jesus is doing. He is making a way for us to God. The entire course of the Bible forbids the worship of angels, but nowhere in the story of Jesus do we see that anyone is forbidden to worship him. In fact, the opposite. They are called to worship Jesus the Son of God. This story, this Christian story, this essential Christian story is precisely the story of one great miracle, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. God didn't tell us to come to him. He came to us. We see this demonstrated in almost every single way when those who are most significant seemingly in this world go to those that serve them. Right now we're in the, the midst of a cycle, an election cycle, and just north of us in the adjoining state will be the first uh, caucuses take, take take place in Iowa every four years. And, and what, you, what you have to see going on there is that the political candidates are compelled every four years to leave their home states to leave the halls of Congress, to leave the governor's mansions, to leave the halls of power that they exist in and where they control things, and to go to the people of Iowa, in the cornfields of Iowa, in the state fairs of Iowa, in the diners of Iowa, to sit at tables with people and drink coffee and look in their eyes by coming to them to demonstrate that they are the kind of person that can be trusted to lead this country in the future. And the people of Iowa have had this responsibility for years and years to sit and to measure the political incarnation of the great people of America, not by staying where they were, but by coming to them. And friends, that is an imitation in a just small way of what the doctrine of the great incarnation of Christ is about. God didn't expect us to come to him. He came to us. Just let that settle on you for a moment. Let it settle on you that the greatest being in the universe came to you. I like to go to U2 concerts. And uh, from time to time I've had the opportunity to stand on the fence before a concert as the band comes in in their cars and they'll often stop and they will come over and talk to you and I've had that opportunity on a few occasions to visit with Bono, the lead singer of U2 and uh, a number of years ago, I was at one of these concerts and I'd positioned myself on the, on the uh, line there and I saw him get out of the car and he looked over toward me and there was this look of familiarity on his face like he recognized me and he started walking right toward me and he put his arms out like this and I'm like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Bono is going to come call me by name and hug me. Well, he wasn't looking at me, he was looking at the guy next to me and he exclaimed, Ian! And he came over and gave him a hug. But just in that moment, there was this glimpse of like, does this great figure recognize me? God sees you. He knows you. He set his love upon you from before the foundation of the world. He cares for you. And he came for you. And that is the prelude to the greatest story ever told. But it's not just this humility-inspiring birth narrative that's before us. It is also a history-altering event. What are the history-altering implications of the incarnation, of the cross of Christ? And when I say that they're history-altering, I want you to understand what I mean by that, is that they they are history-altering, and they will continue to be history-altering until the day when we finally see the Lord face to face. I want you to look with me and your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 22. You can turn forward from the Gospels because Paul, as he goes around the world preaching about the coming of Christ, is explaining to people what the significance of this event is for them. And he goes into great detail in Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 11 to 22, let me read these for you and then I want to share with you five history-altering implications that he speaks of. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two and so making peace and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles' and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that's a mouthful, and there's so much that could be unpacked in that passage, but let me underline five history-altering implications that Paul underlines here. And the first one is this, that in coming into this world as the incarnate Son of God, in dying on the cross, Jesus Christ created a new people. A people unlike any people that the world has ever known. It says it in verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two And so making peace. And this new people is the church. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And it is made up of Jews and Gentiles. It is made up of white people and black people and brown people and yellow people of every background, ethnicity, and place of birth in the course of human history since the time of Christ. It has no boundaries on it except the boundary of do you know Jesus as your Savior? And the implications of this are immense because this world likes to fashion itself as tribes of people who are ultimately in final competition against each other to control defeat and order the world that they live in. But Jesus is telling us that our fundamental identity is not in our ethnicity or where we come from, but it is in Christ. This intrinsic weakness in the modern approaches to the world are going to fail, especially when we think about the racial problems that we have in the world Today, People think that by highlighting uh, uh, that we're all to control our own racial identity that we're actually going to create peace when the opposite is true. Todd Bowles is the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, one of only uh, a few African American coaches in the National Football League, and he, when he was appointed to that role, everyone made a gigantic deal out of it, And he stood in front of the press conference that day. Everyone asked him, "How's it feel to be the only African-American coach in the National Football League? And what Todd Bowles said that day should shake us and remind us of what Jesus is saying here. He said, I don't think it's a big deal. We don't look at color. I think the minute you guys in the media stop making a big deal about it, everybody else will as well. He's saying the main thing is not our color. What Jesus is telling us even more is the main thing isn't our color, it's our Redeemer. It's Jesus. And if we believe that, it should change the way we see everything. A second thing is that Christ erects a new framework for finding peace in this life. In verses 16 to 18, It says that Jesus came that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Up until this time in history, people thought that the way to God was obedience, following the law, checking the boxes doing the right thing, making yourself qualified to be accepted by God. But what Paul is reminding us of here and what Jesus did in his incarnation and at his resurrection through the cross is that he is reconciling us both to God. And in doing that, what is he doing? He is killing the hostility. He's killing the enmity. He's killing the wall that divides both us from God because we can never be holy enough to be accepted by God via the means of the law. He kills that divide because Jesus was holy enough and it was his blood that covered us. And he kills the divide between us as fellow human beings where we want to argue that we're better than the other person because the reality is none of us are good enough. Any of us that find ourselves In the presence of God in heaven, in the end, the first thing that we will exclaim is that we are not worthy. Together, all of us, and God will say, but my son is worthy and his blood has covered you. That should change the way we think about each other in this world. It should also remind us that our morality neither good nor bad, can finally define us. It is the cross of Christ that defines us. A third thing is that Christ establishes a new citizenship. He says, so then you are, verse 19, no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members Of the household of God. In other words, the most important kingdom that you will ever be a part of is not the kingdom of the nation that you live in. It is the kingdom of God. And this tamps down our nationalistic desires. It subjugates them to the cross of Christ, which governs our nationalistic fervor and brings it under the reign of God, for our citizenship is ultimately in the household of God and not in the nations that we were born into. experienced this in a very vivid way a number of years ago on a missions trip with one of our former elders here who's relocated, Dave Hunter. We went to Ukraine and we were invited to dinner at the home of a Ukrainian Gentleman, who told us over the course of the evening that he had been a member of the Russian Air Force during the Cold War when Ukraine was behind the Iron Curtain. Now Dave Hunter, the elder I was sitting with, was a member of the United States Air Force during the Cold War. And as they began to share their stories with each other through the interpreter that was present, they realized that they, for a short season, were stationed at the competing bases that were closest to one another across the Iron Curtain for a season. As if a war had broken out, they might have been two of the first who might have encountered each other fighting. But here we were sitting at table in their home, and the conversation turned away from our varying Air Force assignments to the more common assignment that they both had, elders in churches of Jesus Christ. One in America, one in Ukraine. And that evening, and what flowed from that moment was some of the greatest, most joyful, most faith-forming conversations I ever had as I watched these two men come together in Jesus. That is history altering, if we believe it. A fourth thing is that Christ reveals a true but mysterious history. He says in verse 20 that everything that Jesus did was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You know, it's easy to think of the Bible as an Old Testament story about one group of people and a New Testament story about a completely different group of people. But what Paul is telling them as a Jew himself is that this is one great story about God's faithfulness to His people over the course of all the ages. He's saying there aren't two streams of God's people. There is a single stream of God's people. Those who have faith in God and in the Redeemer the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if he is saying that Christ precedes the apostles and the prophets and Christ follows the apostles and the prophets so that all the stories that take place in the Bible that are told of human beings, even those who made witness to God, are bracketed by this greater story that was being told from before the foundation of the world about Jesus, the Redeemer, the Messiah, which reminds us that our own life experiences, whether they are faithful or unfaithful, do not finally define us. The last thing is that Christ initiates a new temple. Look at verses 21 and 22. He's describing Jesus, and he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now think about how radical that was. Because almost every religion on the face of the earth, including Judaism, had located God in a place. For the Jews, leading up to this time, that place where God made a special habitation was in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. They certainly believed he permeated all of the universe, but they contained him in that moment in the Holy of Holies at that Day of Atonement. And understandably so, they were called to do that. But that mindset started to become a permeating part of their understanding of what it meant to be worshipers of God so that their only real and true worship could ultimately only take place at the temple. What's Paul saying? Listen to it again. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you don't need human places for God to dwell. God dwells by His Holy Spirit in you. Whether you are in this room or driving in your car or flying in an airplane over the Pacific Ocean or sitting in the middle of the desert, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God dwells in you. Our souls are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. And that is life-altering. It's very easy for us, even in the New Testament age, the age of the church, to become so fixated on our denominational traditions, and let me tell you, there's some wonderful things about them. I am a proud Presbyterian, but Jesus is not confined to the Presbyterian church. Jesus is so much greater, and we need to remember that in this day of bitterness and argumentation. And so Christ creates a new people. He erects a new framework for finding peace. He establishes a new citizenship. He reveals a true but mysterious history. And he initiates a new temple. And the effect of this has, is, and will continue to shape the course of human history. It's so interesting to me that in our moment in the modern West, we think the answer to our problems are identity-based solutions to the dilemma of human meaning. And so we, we teach our children in the secular halls of power to declare their own I am's. And we focus our identities on our gender or our ethnicity or our color or our political party, or our sexuality, or our generation, or our experiences, all of which are bound up in the introductory phrase of me and my. And if we just had the wisdom to step back for half a second and look and ask ourselves the question, is this uniting us or is this dividing us further? It is clear. The human answer to the dilemma of meaning is to find your own identities. An answer that will ultimately destroy us. The Christian answer, the biblical answer, is to find your meaning in Christ. And it will unite you it will break down walls of his hostility. It will bring those things that seemed like they could never come together into a place of harmony. It will create hope, not in your ability to keep up, but in the fact that Christ has kept the law for you. It will comfort you when you lose something or someone you love. It is an abiding, history-altering truth that began at the Incarnation. C.S. Lewis wrote often about the Incarnation. It was, to him, the grandest miracle of all. And he compared it illustratively to the moment when you're sitting at the beach, if you've ever sat at the beach for a long time, for hours. There's a moment when the waves stop washing forward, and they begin their retreat. It's the moment of the turning of the tide. And he wrote a poem on the incarnation of Christ called The Turn of the Tide. And I'm going to read it for us in closing. Listen to the wondrous description. Breathless was the air over Bethlehem. Black and bare were the fields, hard as granite the clods, hedges stiff with ice, the sedge in the vise of the pool like pointed iron rods. And the deathly stillness spread from Bethlehem. It was shed wider each moment on the land, and so it ran about the girth of the planet, and from the earth a signal, a warning went out. And away behind the air, her neighbors were aware of change. They were troubled with a doubt like a stab at that moment. Over crab and bowman, over maiden and lion came the shock of returning life, the start and burning pang at heart, setting galaxies to tingle and rock. Great galactic lords stood back to back with swords half-drawn, awaiting the event. And a whisper among them passed, Is this perhaps the last of our story and the glories of our crown? And then the lords dared to breathe, and swords were sheathed, and a rustling, a relaxing began, with a rumor and a noise of the resuming of joys on the nerves of the universe it ran. Then, pulsing into space with delicate dulcet pace, came a music, infinitely small and clear, but it swelled and drew nearer and held all worlds in the sharpness of its call. A shiver of rebirth and deliverance on the earth went gliding. Her bonds were released. Into broken light, a breeze rippled and woke the seas. In the forest, it startled every beast. So death lay in arrest. But at Bethlehem, the blessed, nothing greater could be heard than a dry wind and the thorn, the cry of the one newborn and a cattle in stall as they stirred. Jesus came to us. And he changed the world. Let's pray. Father, would you help us on this Christmas Eve when we gather with those we love to not neglect the awesome wonder of the greatest story ever told that shaped the course of human history, that altered the fate of nations, that changed our lives. And we pray, Father, in our little ways as families, as people, as individuals, that whenever and however we have the opportunity, that we will will shout it from the mountain that we will declare the wonder that the world, that life, that all that is, is changed because of the coming of Christ. Teach us to tell it faithfully, to tell it boldly, to tell it loudly, to tell it truthfully, and to tell it with joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.